social media, and diagnosing autism. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, a completely unqualified author and podcaster who reads a lot of books and has had a lot of life experiences, and that's what this show is about, honoring your questions with dignity instead of my completely unqualified answer. It's been a while, but we're back, so what do you say we do a show? Our first question comes from email, and it reads, SciMi, it says S-C-I capital M-I exclamation point. So I guess that's SciMi, short for Science Mike, I assume. Anyway, uh, SciMi, is everything okay? It seems like you aren't on social media much anymore. Watching you on different podcasts, I'm catching bits and pieces as well that you seem to be concerned about social media in general. We miss you please come back. <laughs> yes, that is a, that's a completely valid observation that I have uh, not been on social media as much. Uh, and which to say not as much means almost completely not at all. Uh, I have noticed, if I look at all the needles of, uh, of my work, the combination of not running Ask Science Mike regularly and not posting on social media, uh, slows a lot of things down. A lot less people reach out and try to book me to speak, for example, or um, you know, uh, fewer patrons sign up, fewer people sign up for my email list. All those things really, really slow down uh, when I'm not on social media and uh, and not podcasting. Um, but you know, I've been in trauma therapy, as uh, regular listeners know, and I've just needed a little space for myself. Uh, I'm a lot more sensitive than normal. So um, really any kind of critical tweet um, directed at me or someone else (laughs) really upsets me right now. Um, Social media, therefore, can take me to some very, very dark places Um, because I just start feeling overwhelmed. And so to make sure that I can be a science mic for years and decades to come, um, I've just kind of stepped off the the wheel. Um, if I get on social media, I post something, and I don't really look at what anyone says back. I just kind of tweet and and leave. Um, or if I have you know questions for my book, I put it on Facebook and see what comes back. And um, yeah. So you're right. I have not been around on social media, uh, but it's not just my mental health. I'm having a a larger research project, I guess, on social media in general. Uh, I've gotten really concerned about the impact social media has on our society and on people's mental health, which is strange because I was an early social media adopter. Um even pre-Facebook, pre-MySpace, uh, the very earliest social media platforms. 
I was a member. Um, and certainly when MySpace came around, I hopped on MySpace. And some of you probably have never even heard of MySpace because you're younger than I am. And uh, then I you know, had an early Facebook account. I was on Twitter really early. My Twitter user number is pretty low. Um, first year Twitter was operational, I was on it. So uh, I've always loved social media um, for, for really specific reasons. Social media allows us to connect with other people in pretty unique ways, especially if you have a view or some point of identity that's outside the boundaries of your local community. So kind of contemporaneously, I would think about the ex-evangelical community on Twitter. Those are people who grew up in the evangelical church who have felt estranged from it, and in many cases that has put them in a state of uh, kind of vulnerability not the good kind of vulnerability with their uh, friends and family. And so the exvangelical hashtag and the corresponding community allows them to connect with other people online for a sense of belonging and support. And that's really good. I, and I know that personally. Uh, years ago, I went to a two days with Rob Bell conference where it was the first time I admitted I didn't believe in God anymore. And the 50 people are at that conference formed a Facebook group and that Facebook group was like my lifeline for years. <laughs> like That was the only place I really felt a sense of belonging and community and where I could be myself and not be judged. That's good. I think that's good for society. And I definitely think that's good for mental health. This ability that social media has to connect us with other people. It also lets us learn from other perspectives. I am a voracious reader. And I would say I've probably learned more about um, LGBTQ justice and equality, racial justice, um, the the issues and challenges indigenous and First Nations people uh, come up against in United, the United States and around the world. I've learned more from social media on those things than I have from reading books. And the books I've read, a lot of them I've found from recommendations uh, of people on social media. So that's really valuable, this ability for us to learn from other perspectives. And then honestly, those two things are incredibly valuable. But my favorite thing about social media is the, the humor, this kind of uh, nested, recursive, an inside joke stacked on itself a thousand times uh, style of humor and irony and sarcasm and wit that we find on social media. I just love, I get on social media sometimes and just go beyond giggling to just absolute, uh, I don't know what's what's the laugh version of a sob where you're laughing so hard your eyes are watering and uh, your stomach hurts. But I laugh that hard at some things I see on social media uh, platforms. And I think that's great. You know, there's there's more. There's more. I mean, uh, out of those things, you get Black Twitter, you get Black Lives Matter, you get Me Too, you get all these incredible forms of um, advocacy that raise public awareness and result in real change. Those are good things. Those are good things without qualification. So uh, I can't say that social media is bad because there's so many good things from social media. But I can still say that social media is a cause for concern for me. And there's a few reasons. 
One is that all the big players in social media today are giant multinational corporations. Facebook is a massive publicly traded company. And they also own Instagram uh, and, uh, and other platforms as well. And then Twitter is a giant multinational corporation. And they all come from this kind of Silicon Valley, pseudo-libertarian uh, framework. And that means that when black Twitter does amazing culturally shaping work, white dudes in Silicon Valley monetize it. I- I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with the degree to which our both our attention and our personal data are commodified and sold. I, I don't think that's a good or healthy economic structure. You know, Mark Zuckerberg just had an op-ed where he defended Facebook's business model. But I think if you look at Facebook's business model through the lens of behavioral economics, it's a bad incentive structure. It creates bad behavior for Facebook and creates bad behaviors for Facebook users. Why? Because in their never-ending quest for growth every quarter, social media companies are always trying to capture more and more of our attention so they can gather more and more of our personal data to sell to more and more advertising companies. And that means what we see on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other social platforms is whatever machines calculate will keep us the most engaged and ideally compulsively engaged. Facebook and Twitter are more successful if you can't help but pick up your phone and check for the latest thing. Um, And they employ UI designers and they employ um, game theory experts and gamification experts who understand how to create compulsive behavioral loops in humans. Those are intentional architectural decisions in these platforms. And that concerns me. That concerns me deeply. I don't trust giant multinational corporations to do right by the public. I just don't. We're also finding in psychology that social media makes it very easy to dehumanize others. And more social media use is uh, correlated and, and we're possibly looking at a causal relationship with feelings of uh, increased feelings of anxiety, depression, and isolation, especially when f- social media is used to replace minutes of face-to-face time as opposed to supplementing it. Uh, so, so one of the things we're seeing in research is maybe uh, you eliminate most of the negative effects of social media if you supplement the existing minutes per week you spend face-to-face with friends with social media. But many people, it's not supplementing. It's actually replacing face-to-face time. And our brains don't love that. Uh, Our our brains are gratified by the presence of another person with facial expressions and body language. And uh, our physical contact is another important thing for human mental health. So, you know, uh, younger generations, millennials and post-millennials, that have the highest social media use time, uh, we're finding a very clean connection between more screen time, more feelings of depression, isolation, anxiety, even uh, suicidal ideation. That concerns me. That really concerns me. 
And that's related to that previous point, right? If you've got machines trying to serve up the juiciest, most outrageous viral content, morally outrageous content, uh, moment by moment, every time you hit that phone, you get this like, woo, really large uh, amount of stimulation. And your brain loves it because you're a social mammal. I'm a social mammal. We're all social mammals. And your brain can't get enough. You know, your brain can't get enough. Uh, our brains love gossip, for example. They really do. Uh, gossip is is kind of a survival mechanism for our species. And social media, I mean, it just feels like a, a never-ending fire hose of gossip. So I've thought about leaving social media completely. I mean, I've really, really thought about it. I, I've had my... Uh, fingers hovering over the delete key on, on my Science Mike Facebook page, my personal profile, and my Twitter profile more than once. And two things have kept me from leaving. One, I'd miss all of you. I love connecting with you, the listeners of this program, on social media. And two, I'm terrified I won't be able to make rent without social media. Uh when I don't engage regularly with social media, it costs me thousands of dollars a month, if you can believe that. It really does. Uh, the more I tweet, uh, the, the better my business does. The more I post on Facebook, the better my business does. The more tickets sell to events, the more I post because of those algorithms. They like regular posters. And if, if you'll contribute to their attention economy, the machines will reward you by showing more people when you're trying to engage in commerce, right? So if I want to sell tickets to events, if I want to sell books, if I want to get patrons, then I have to pay the piper. I have to get on the content treadmill and just keep posting. When you don't post for a while and then you post again, very few people see what you posted. And that's the structure that we're all dealing with, right? We're being trained by machines <laughs> how to behave, and I don't like that. Do you see why I'm conflicted? There's so many wonderful, beautiful things about social media. Really, really incredible things. And there are terrifying things, dehumanizing things. So I've been looking for a long time for some other kind of social media platform that will allow as much of the good in social media with as little of the bad as possible. And uh, you've seen me kind of make experiments with that. We've got a Slack group uh, for the liturgists, and Slack is a, a platform that companies use to communicate in small teams to replace email. And the Slack group is a lot of fun, but because it's uh, – a program built by programmers for people in the tech industry. It's not the most accessible way to communicate. We have a small but passionate group of users on that Slack group who I love to talk with, but other people come in and they say, I cannot figure this out, and they leave. Uh, so Slack Slack didn't get us there. Then we tried a platform called Mighty Networks, um, and uh, Mighty Networks has a couple of really compelling things. But at the end of the day, even though you're paying a company to run, which the liturgists, we just pay for it uh, just, just to see how it goes. Uh, we're not charging anybody. 
but we, we we pay for this platform. And but another company still owns the data, and I, I, that really concerns me. This corporate ownership of data thing, and what can be done with data to people. Um, so Mighty Networks never really took off. We've got a Patreon page both for Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist Podcast. And uh, when I actually get a, you know back to posting on the Ask Science Mike Patreon page, there's a, a a nice little community there. And the Patreon page on the Liturgist Podcast is very active. But it doesn't really let you connect with each other. It just lets you connect with with us, the creators of those programs. And we think there's tremendous value with you all connecting to each other. There's some unofficial Facebook groups out there. Uh, a lot of variation. There's a big liturgist community. There's a lit singles group that I keep hearing wonderful and scandalous things about. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. Of course, we've got official Facebook pages and official Twitter profiles and all that stuff. And I'm just not satisfied with any of it. I want a social media platform that isn't owned by any multinational corporation. I want a social media platform where there is no algorithm trying to maximize attention. That's important to me. Uh, Back in the early days when Twitter and Facebook were chronologically listed and machines weren't trying to figure out the juiciest content, it wasn't so compulsive loop forming. It didn't turn into a bad habit on social media. So I've wanted a chronological presentation of content. That's something I've looked for. And I think I have found something. There is an open source project called Mastodon, uh, which is kind of an open source replacement for Twitter. It's kind of a combination of Twitter and email. Don't let that turn you off. I mean, email architecturally, meaning email is made up of a bunch of servers that talk to each other over a common protocol. That's how email works. That's why uh, an at yahoo.com email can talk to an at gmail.com email. They are federated together through a protocol, and that's how Mastodon works. There's different Mastodon servers, but they can all talk to each other. And our Mastodon server, which just hit 900 people, is social.theliturgist.com. You can go there. You can create an account, and you can immediately start connecting with people who listen to the Liturgist podcast, a significant number of whom also listen to Ask Science Mike. I didn't want to start two separate uh, communities. Uh, I mean, if you got if you really want an Ask Science Mike instance, I'll create one. Just let me know. But I think we'd probably be okay just sharing the Liturgist uh, Mastodon instance. So you go there, you create an account, you pick a name. Mine is Mike. <laughs> so I'm just... Uh, at Mike on that server. And uh, and then you can start talking with people. And what's amazing to me is how supportive a community forms immediately on an environment like that. So cause some of the hostility and negative, negativity you see on Twitter or Facebook, I'm just not seeing it on Mastodon. And so people can talk about deconstruction, they can talk about existentialism, they can talk about sexuality, they can talk about all the questions that people in the process of deconstruction and faith transition have. And some people are on the other side of faith transition and deconstruction, and they can share tips from their journey, and everyone uh, communicates together. And it is, I'm telling you, it is really quite lovely. Um, and it's not corporate-owned. I mean, the liturgist instance is owned by the liturgist incorporated, which is a corporation, uh, which is owned by myself and Michael Gunker. So those are the shareholders. We don't demand uh, quarterly reports of growth. 
we don't demand that uh, listener information is monetized. Uh, quite the contrary, we don't do anything with your Mastodon data <laughs> and won't. There's there's no advertising on this platform. None. Do you hear me? There's no advertising on this platform. Um, so I've decided it started as an experiment, but it's grown enough. That's going to be where I do social media from now on. So if you want to connect with me and you want to connect with other listeners of Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast, just head to social.theliturgist.com and create an account. You'll be confused at first, but people uh, there would love to help you figure out how to use it. There's apps for Android and iOS, and uh, there's a web interface. There's a lot of ways to use Mastodon, but uh, you it's got all the capacity to connect with others that other social media have. You can learn from other people's perspectives. There's an incredibly active and thriving LGBTQ community on uh, the Mastodon Fediverse, which is what they call all the Mastodon servers put together, the Fediverse, because they're federated together. Um, there's a lot of humor. It is very funny. Uh, but the architecture of the site specifically is designed to make it more difficult to have mass harassment of people. It's designed specifically to avoid uh, triggering people who have trauma. So it's really easy to create content warnings on posts that people use. Uh, so you can have a, a platform where people can both ask questions about sexuality who are still trying to figure that out and not have that be just automatically shown to people for whom that would be upsetting, right? So if you have questions about you know, the theology of same-sex marriage, that might be a good question for you to ask, but that might also really upset a person who is married in a same-sex marriage. Do you see what I mean? That's a tension we often face in community, and content warnings really help people be able to ask good-natured questions on a road of learning and people not be continuously re-traumatized. So I really like it. And the players in Mastodon, there are no multinational corporations with a Mastodon instance, to my knowledge. Even if they had one, we don't have to talk to them. Um, and uh, there's no algorithm generating it. Um, so I really, really like this. I've enjoyed it so far. And so now I'm going to announce it You know, first here on Ask Science Mike. Ultimately, we'll talk about it on the Liturgist podcast as well. And uh, I expect that to be a community of thousands of people. Um, but it's not closed. That's the that's the big thing about Mastodon. Since it's federated, um, you can talk to anyone on any Mastodon server anywhere in the world. So kind of your primary community would be other liturgists or Ask Science Mike listeners. But you can you can talk to somebody anywhere just by adding after their username what server they're on. I know that sounds confusing. It'll make a lot of sense uh, if you join us on Mastodon. So. Uh, if you don't want to type social.theliturgist.com, because a lot of people can't spell liturgist, I get it. Just go to AskScienceMike.com uh, to the show notes on this episode, which is episode 170. And you'll have a link right there to join us on Mastodon. And I'd love to see you there. Uh, I, Instead of never using social media on Mastodon, I'm on multiple times a day. I follow everyone who follows me. Uh, we've just had a really, really great time over there. So I'd love to see you on this and see if we can create a healthier form of social media together. 
And heck, if we do a good enough job at this, maybe other podcasts and other media influencers will start creating their own Mastodon instances. And maybe, just maybe, we could make Twitter and Facebook less powerful in the world. I know that I would love to see um, a black Mastodon instance, like for all the excellence and vibrance that comes out of black Twitter. I'd love to see like the root.com or someone like that start a Mastodon instance and stop letting Silicon Valley monetize the voices of marginalized people. Um, So it's a little idealistic, but what else would you expect (laughs) from me? Anyway, uh, I'd love to see you on Mastodon uh, and I'd love to connect with you and talk with you more. It's that time of year where I'm on the road again. So uh, let's see. This weekend, February 1st through February 3rd, uh, the Cosmic Campfire is happening in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Really excited about that event. We've got an amazing panel there. It's going to be a literal campfire, by the way. We're going to do s'mores. Uh, I'll be there for the s'mores. There's going to be karaoke. It's not going to be a normal conference by any means, but it is going to be a, a gathering of you know, really insightful scientists and theologians and college dropouts like me <laughs> talking about the biggest questions that face humanity. Uh, I'd call it practical existentialism because it's, we're going to talk about those questions in ways that impact our life and our living. So we'd love to uh, see you at the Cosmic Campfire. You can learn more at cosmiccampfire.party. February 10th, I'm going to be in Atlanta at the First Presbyterian Church for Theo Ed, which uh, I am like so pumped about because I'm going to be uh, with Diana Butler Bass and Pete Inns and Patrick Reyes, which are uh, three absolutely incredible thinkers that I really shouldn't be on the platform with. So if you want to see me drag down the reputations of three reputable people (laughs) just go to theoed.com and you can you can learn more there and then finally uh in may we've got one more ken men coming up with the liturgist and there are i mean a handful of tickets left there um actually it's kind of cool it usually sells out immediately and this one we have had looks like five tickets left uh, so it's May 24th and 26th in Ojai, California. Ken is an absolutely incredible event that I halfway hate because it is so psychologically intense. But we have seen serious growth and change in men's lives after they attend this event. It is uh, not your grandfather's men's retreat. It's not a pancake breakfast and early Bible study. This is a, a practical way to confront patriarchy. Uh, in the lives of men. It's led by Hillary McBride, and then uh, me and Michael Gunger act as facilitators. Uh, so, you know, you come hang out with us, and uh, and we get real, and we get real fast. So you might learn more about relating to other people as a man than you have ever known before. So that's three things I've got coming up. And then uh, I do also want to mention that you can bring me to talk at any college, any church, any conference, anything you've got going on, uh, just by going to my website. There's a, a book mic button. Um, 
you know, if you want to bring me to your community, uh, that is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> the reason I do the podcast is just to get enough of you to invite me to come talk to you. That's, I just love it. Uh, so if you go to MikeMcCarg.com or AskScienceMike.com and click on speaking, you can get information there. And of course, if you just want to see me somewhere I'm already going, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events and you'll get a list of everything I've got happening in the next few months. I don't put everything going on. Uh, you know, I've got stuff booked in 2020, believe it or not. But I wait until, you know, we're three or four months from an event before I put it on that calendar. Uh, so I'd love to see you there. And if I'm not coming near you, on my listed events, you can make that happen just by booking me. Uh, so, see you soon. Last question on this two-question episode. I knew these would be really long answers. Um, and this, I'll warn you now, will be another long answer. So, hopefully that will make up for <laughs> the fewer episodes is that they're a little bit longer. Uh, anyway, here's the question. Science Mike, thanks for talking about your journey learning that you have autism. I've wondered for years if I might be on the spectrum, but I'm a 29-year-old queer woman. When I look into the testing and diagnosis process, it seems oriented towards children and especially toward boys. How did you go about getting a diagnosis? Anything you say will be very helpful. Much love to you. Bree. Uh, Bree, thanks for uh, this question. I get asked a whole lot about autism since I told everyone on this program um, that I'm autistic. I get a lot of cards and letters, and I do feel a little unqualified. I'm new to the autism community. Uh, I'm new in my understanding of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and I just want to start by saying, you're really right. This is a, a very complex process. Uh, so I think I'll just give you maybe an, an autobiographical sketch here of my journey so you can see what applies to you. I, I think that's probably the easiest way to do this. So here's what here's what it was like for me uh, for years, years and years. My wife, Jenny, has told me she thinks I'm on the autism spectrum for years. And I would always tell her that was wrong and she can't say that because I thought she was saying it, you know, out of like a media trope, right? There's this media trope of kind of intelligent men, absent-minded men. Oh, they're autistic. They have intellectual superpowers, right? Like that's the, that's very much like there's the, there's the Rain Man narrative of a savant gifting of someone who has severe developmental impairment. And then there's kind of the other narrative of, oh, you know, Bill Gates is autistic, right? And I just don't know that those are helpful tropes in media. They erase the incredible diversity of life experiences and presentations of autism in, in people. They, as you've said in your question, make maleness identified with autism in, in a way that makes it difficult for women and girls to be diagnosed with autism. So I would always kind of disregard Jenny's idea that I could be on the spectrum. And uh, and then my friend Hillary McBride speculated 
uh, as a friend, and she made very clear this was not a professional diagnosis. She just speculated. She said, if you ever consider that you might be on the spectrum. And uh, that was weightier because Hillary's a PhD candidate and uh, and a licensed psychotherapist. So um, when Hillary said that, I went online and I took a bunch of quizzes, screening quizzes, and I scored highly on all of them. So online quizzes cannot diagnose with autism, but they can do primitive versions of the kind of screening tests that um, a psychologist or psychiatrist would use to see if more testing is warranted. So I took those tests and scored, I mean, really, really highly on all of them. Uh, and so based on that, the next week I went to, I Googled autism testing centers and I found the one closest to me and I drove to it and I stood at the front door and waited for them to open. <laughs> I didn't have an appointment. I just waited for the, for them to open. I think it was a Tuesday morning, Monday or Tuesday morning. I don't remember. And I remember when I heard the door click, they unlocked it. I like followed the receptionist in. And the first thing I noticed was that the waiting room was full of toys and posters. I don't know how you describe like very like the kind of posters you would hang in a, a school aged classroom, grade school. So I was like, this is this is weird. Everything's very colorful. So, I, you know, the receptionist literally sits down. I'm standing at the counter. And she says, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like to be tested for autism. <laughs> um, oh, no, no. First, anyway, she thought I was there about my child. And it took a little bit to clarify that I was there about me. And then she said, well, we work with children. I'm sorry. You know, you can go to UCLA. And UCLA is like across the world from me. LA is a big place. Um, and I did not want to try to drive to UCLA or get in touch with someone at UCLA. So I was about to give up, uh, when one of the doctors, uh, the one of the psychologists came from the back of, uh, of the facility and she said, excuse me, are you science Mike? So she recognized my voice, which was super helpful. And I said, I was, and told her what I was there. And she said, well, going back, I'll, I'll talk with you. So we were talking and, you know, she's asking me some questions. Um, she asked me about eye contact. I remember she asked me about smells, a lot of, a lot of stuff that seemed weird to me. And then she gave me some tests, some little assessments. And, uh, so I took those tests, some of which were like, you're literally filling out bubbling things and other things are more interactive. And we did that for a few hours. And then she said that um, she couldn't diagnose me with autism uh, because adult diagnosis was outside of her specialty. But she could refer me to someone. So she then gave me uh, an email address and a phone number for uh, another practice uh, that was in Pasadena, so a little further away, but not, not as far as UCLA who specialize in talking to adults. And the way that worked is first, I just met with uh, one 
psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, clinical, psychiatrist, one of the two, forgive me, I I don't remember. Uh, And that's really important because one of them is like a required role in diagnosing autism in the current version of the DSM, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, the deal was it's super expensive and in-depth to get a formal autism diagnosis. Thousands of dollars. Because in the DSM-5, there there's a panel of people that have to diagnose you under criteria that are around early childhood development. So if you're an adult, they have to basically go back in time, which means they got to look at your school records from kindergarten and first grade and second grade and pre-K if you've got it. They've got to interview, potentially interview your parents or people who knew you earlier in life. Um, it can't just be a you know presentation of symptoms now, especially because if, like me, you've made it into your 40s undiagnosed, you're pretty good at masking autism symptoms, right? Um, so the way that worked is there's first a conversation about why you want a diagnosis, Um and then there we would I would just kind of go once a week and just talk to her and we do a few tests at a time. That's when I figured out that I have face blindness. Um which is a whole nother story. And then at the end of that process, you know, she'll give you a, a letter of opinion of whether she believes you have autism or not. Um or or believes you are a candidate. It's it's more formally uh, the language is more formal than I believe you have autism. <laughs> but basically, they, they're saying if they were on the panel performing their role, would they say, yes, I think this person has autism or no, I don't. And then you can take uh, that that block of time you spent with that person and then you can kind of, their job is done for what they would do in the panel. So then if you want to move to a full diagnosis, now you, that work's already done. You're not paying twice. Um, so for me, that was really helpful. And she also told me that most adults don't seek formal diagnosis unless you're like seeking government benefits. There's really not a lot of benefit to it. And there can potentially be liability to it. Like, so if, if, you know, Jenny and I, uh, got divorced and there was a custody dispute, like it would be possible potentially for that diagnosis to be used in those proceedings. So, um, that that's, you know, a potential note of concern, but I didn't want to self-diagnose, which so many people in the autism community do, which by the way, is fine to self-diagnose with autism. You don't want to be cavalier about it. You don't want to like hear me say I have autism and you also have trouble looking people in the eye and you just assume you're autistic. You would want to go in a much more in-depth process than that, you would want to look at the specific diagnostic criteria for autism. Um, but many people, most adults actually, in the autism community self-diagnose. But I uh, I decided I wanted to do the whole thing. Um, so I kind of nearly emptied out our savings account. And uh, I did a full, the full panel, which included a... Um, neuroscientist and at the end of that process 
I got a formal diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and they did, I mean, they got records from my elementary school. It was a very, very in-depth process. Um, and that's what it looked like. So, and I live in Los Angeles. America's only got two mega cities, New York and LA. That's the only two cities in America with, uh, in, in their metro, greater metro areas with more than 10 million people. So there's a lot of resources here. Depending on where you are in the country, there may not be a private practice like I worked with that specializes in diagnosing adults with autism. That that might not be available to you at all. And if it is available, it's super expensive. Thousands of dollars, not hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. I had to know. I just had to know. I didn't want to publicly identify as autistic without formal diagnosis because I'm a public figure, right? I feel like the stakes were higher for me than for most people in this identification because so many people, as soon as I talk about it, are going to hear about it. Um, so I wanted to be really careful. And uh, so I went through the, the whole process. And it is an ordeal. It really is. So you need to think, like, why do you want this diagnosis? Um, do, I mean, are you? do you have a level of impairment where you might need uh, government assistance? If so, formal diagnosis can probably help. Uh, if not, like, consider self-diagnosing or consider seeing if you can find a professional who will do some of the screening tests and then tell you how likely they think it is before you proceed with a full panel or maybe just stop there. Uh, I think if I, if I wasn't an author and a podcaster, I would have just stopped, uh, after I went, you know, I think it was six weeks, uh, with the specialist. That would have been enough for me. I wouldn't need the full panel. Um, but autism, it's, it's, it's complex. It's not fully understood medically at all. Uh, and, and every version of the DSM, you know, tends to revise it. I mean, before the DSM-5, Asperger's and Autism Spectrum Disorder were separate things, and now they've been combined um, based on some findings in neuroscience, which is why you need a neuroscientist on a panel. And neuroscientist's time, uh, that doesn't come cheap. (laughs) Um, So I hope that's helpful uh, in your process and, and what you're thinking about. And I hope that's, you know, I... Everywhere I go now, every single event, a half dozen or more people tell me they suspect they might be on the spectrum. So for all of you who aren't sure, I I hope that provides a little clarity and a little insight um, into what the process is like and whether it's something that you would like to go through. Um, whatever, Whatever you do, I'd say just don't be cavalier. You know, people... I think about obsessive compulsive disorder and people who like things neat will say, oh, I'm so OCD. Well, (laughs) you're neat. OCD is a very serious and significant mental health condition with specific diagnostic criteria. And if you're cavalier with OCD, you're kind of erasing the experiences of people who have obsessive compulsive disorder in the same way when people say, oh, I'm so autistic casually. 
uh, that minimizes the life experiences of people who actually have autism spectrum disorder. So whatever you do, I would just say be cautious, be careful, and be thorough. Well, that's another Ask Science Mike in the books. I'd like to thank Greg Nordeen for his amazing work producing this program. I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production work and my patrons on Patreon so faithfully keeping this show on the air, even when I go off the air for mental health. If you'd like to join my patrons, uh, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Patreon icon somewhere. I've recently been told that Patreon's not super easy to find for <laughs> Science Mike or the liturgists. And that could be because I'm horribly self-conscious whenever I ask you all for money. <laughs> uh, but it does help. It really does. It, it makes the work possible. Um, if, if, if the Patreon ever dried up, I just wouldn't be able to do Ask Science Mike anymore. Uh, and as you can see, getting back in a rhythm here, um, probably do every other week uh, until my next book is done. Then we'll be back to weekly episodes of Ask Science Mike. And uh, I've missed it. This was good. I turned on the microphone knowing I'm talking with you all. actually felt good this time. Um, so that that's encouraging for me. Uh, towards the end of, of my last run, I guess in November, I was feeling this sense of dread every time I came to the podcast uh, table. Every time I swung this microphone out and started to talk. Dread and fear. Uh, thank you, trauma. The trauma therapy is working. So uh, here is to a healthier me, uh, loving all of you, and thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.